Welcome back to the podcast on digital technologies and human rights, framed by a conference on the topic last April, put on by the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University and the Office of the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights and Extreme Poverty. I'm your host and guide, Stevie Bergman. We tend to think of of welfare um, and social protection as a burden on society. And that's amazing because, I mean, it's a total failure of understanding what the problem is. The burden, if there is a burden, the burden is on the shoulders of the poor people. That's the, these are the people who have the burden. And so the least we can do is to try to share a bit of their burden. But some of the things that I think human rights frameworks can encourage us to think about that we're not thinking about yet, and I share some concerns around privacy as the central sort of metric, or even data security as a central metric, um, because that assumes you already have the data and that it's appropriate for you to have it. When, if we think about social protection logically, uh, it embraces almost all of us. In other words, most of us are going to rely upon some form of social security, uh, various forms of benefits and so on in our ordinary middle-class lives. So social protection is designed to say that this is not just about those who are down and out. It's not just about the homeless, not those who are living in extreme poverty, but a much broader definition of potential vulnerability That was professors Mark Fleurbe, Virginia Eubanks, and Phil Alston. Now, continuing on the topic of digital technologies and human rights, in this episode, we're going to develop our understanding of human rights. When just searching the definition online, we get that human rights are a right that is believed to belong justifiably to every person. Formally, those who discuss and fight for human rights are often thinking of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, first laid down in 1948 by the UN General Assembly. And according to the United Nations, Human rights are rights inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. Human rights include the right to life and liberty, freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and education, and many more. Everyone is entitled to these rights without discrimination. An international human rights law lays down the obligations of governments to act in certain ways or to refrain from certain acts in order to promote and protect human rights and fundamental freedoms of individuals or groups. The importance of human rights and employing them in what is called a human rights approach is pressed upon at the conference by Hiba Kamal Grayson of Google. I think there are a lot of benefits to a human rights approach. Um, you know, human rights are universal. Human rights language and framework have global legitimacy. They're comprised of a set of defined norms that have weight across borders and sectors. And they're rooted in the incontrovertible dignity of every person on the planet. I'm guessing you've probably heard of human rights. And you may think of necessities like the right to clean water or the right to health. Here is Professor Philip Alston, the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights and Extreme Poverty, making an important point. When it comes to human rights, uh, the definition, believe it or not, is actually important. There are two definitions, one for the United States and one for the rest of the world. In the uh, rest of the world, there are things called economic, social, and cultural rights. Uh, and so we talk about a right to social protection, we talk about a right to education, a right to food, a right to housing. 
Uh, those rights are not contested as such in other countries. In the United States, it's different. Even though there is a right to education in all state constitutions, uh, even though many politicians are now talking about a right to health care, we still have this basic barrier that when Americans think about human rights, if they do, as opposed to civil rights, uh, they don't uh, automatically include a lot of the issues that would come up under the rubric of social protection. Important to note, this podcast is being created in the United States, and the conference that frames our discussions here took place on U.S. soil. So how Americans view human rights is important for us to consider here. And here's Professor Alston again, now bringing us to the rights focused on in the conference and in this podcast, the right to social protection and the right to an effective remedy. Social protection is partly a fudge term. There isn't a, a clear definition of it for the most part. It's, it's generic. We want to avoid a reference to welfare. When, if we think about social protection logically, uh, it embraces almost all of us. In other words, most of us are going to rely upon some form of social security, uh, various forms of benefits and so on in our ordinary middle-class lives. What is welfare in the US? Well, uh, it's food stamps, uh, it's housing assistance, housing allowance, it's Medicaid, and once you start adding all these up, you begin to see that it's not the image that you have in your mind of the average welfare recipient. It is actually tens of millions of Americans who are in receipt of these sorts of benefits, uh, the vast majority of whom are in work, generally full-time, and not able to cope based uh, simply on the income that they earn. There's a really important story here, and an important history. This is professor and author of Automating Inequality, Virginia Eubanks, talking about poverty policy in the US. I'm going to play the clip in its entirety. So I'm just going to give you a very short history of sort of poverty policy in the US, a couple of highlights for us to keep in mind. So the history we have, as Philip pointed out earlier, of public assistance in the United States is largely a history of attempting to limit people's access to their economic human rights, um, not to facilitate them. Um, in the book, I talk about sort of four major moments um, in that move. The first is the construction of actual physical brick and mortar poorhouses, county poorhouses. This happened um, beginning around 1819, a huge economic dislocation. And the poorhouses were largely about um, producing more thermometers about conditionality for support so basically in order to enter a poorhouse and receive um, public support if you're struggling to meet your basic needs you had to agree to give up your right to vote and hold office if you had that right at the time this is 1819 so that wasn't everybody of course uh, you couldn't marry and you gave up your children and also often you were choosing a, a really high possibility of dying so poor houses had death rates often as high as 30% annually um, second moment, a really important moment in sort of U.S. poverty policy is 1873, another huge economic dislocation, the Depression of 1873. We shifted at this moment as poor houses stopped working, both because they were way more expensive than we thought they would be, um, which we should keep in mind as we talk about these tools. 
And two, because they actually ended up to be places that sort of fomented resistance, because even in really horrible conditions, you put 200 poor and working class people together in a building, and they're going to start talking about <laughs> the conditions of their lives, and that creates a problem for folks who are hoping to sort of control them through these institutions. So we moved to this new system that's called scientific charity. Scientific charity articulates itself almost entirely as being the most um, evidence-based practice of its time. It's largely interested in classifying poor and working people along a spectrum of moral deservingness. This is, it's also deeply connected to eugenics and to an anti-immigrant movement in the United States that results in all kinds of immigration restriction. So in the 1930s, we moved to social protection, um, which is sort of a high point in many ways of the history of social protection in the United States. It's where we get social security. It's, it's where we get our basic welfare programs. But it's also a moment where we in the United States doubled down on white supremacy. So who was excluded from the most um, universal programs in uh, US poverty policy through the New Deal were agricultural and domestic workers, which is mostly African-American and Latinx workers in the United States who got um, shunted into these secondary support programs, things like AF, at the time ADC, became AFDC, became TANF, what we talk of as sort of the welfare program in the United States. And then we have in the history what I refer to in the book as the rise of the digital poorhouse. So largely people were excluded from these more generous universal public support programs through directly discriminatory eligibility rules. Things like man in house that said if there was a man living, that you had any kind of relationship basically with, they became financially responsible for your children, you couldn't access welfare. Things like employable mother, which said if you have a job that the state believes is more important than caring for your children, then you can't get public assistance. Generally, again, those jobs were agricultural or domestic. Literally at the time these eligibility laws were passed, um, senators were saying things like, if we give welfare to everyone in the South, who's going to iron my shirts? Right? Literally, this is the way they, they talked about these systems. So we have the rise of the digital poorhouse in the late 60s and early 70s as welfare rights movements push back against these discriminatory eligibility rules in courts and win a number of legal victories that uh, basically open the roles to people who had traditionally been excluded. And actually, that's the moment that we see these new automated decision-making tools enter the history of public services in the United States. It's not in the 1980s when the technology became available. It's not in the 1990s when the policy changed, the sort of reform of welfare. It's in 1968, 1969, and 1970. I think it's really important to understand that because it shows that these tools are likely trying to solve a different political problem than the ones we usually talk about. Professor Eubanks refers to a term she coins in her book, Automating Inequality. This is the digital poorhouse. Another term you'll often hear and is mentioned many times in Professor Alston's report to the UN General Assembly is the digital welfare state. Now, let's talk about where AI and machine learning come in. Professor Eubanks touches on this the way technology can be employed and has been in the past to keep the poor down. And here's Professor Alston. Uh, human rights is almost always acknowledged when we start talking about the principles that should govern AI. But it's acknowledged as a veneer to provide some legitimacy and not as a framework 
and not even uh, as a body of law that shapes the so-called ethical frameworks that are then developed at great length. Uh, you will notice a, a very determined sleight of hand that applies in almost every statement of ethics and AI where there is a nod in the direction of human rights and then you get out of there as fast as you possibly can uh, and into some much more general notion of ethics that comes from God knows where, uh, in fact, uh, and that's very convenient. Uh, in practice, what happens, at least from the point of view of a human rights practitioner, is, of course, that economic, social and cultural rights are immediately out the door. They are not relevant. The focus is on the traditional civil and political rights. Uh, but even then, we very quickly move down to privacy and non-discrimination as the two overriding concerns. To the extent that there is discussion of, and there always is, of the notions of transparency and accountability, they bear no relationship to their human rights cousins of transparency and accountability. Accountability in the human rights area is the accountability essentially of the state. It also, of course, applies to private actors, but essentially through the state. What we see in the AI area generally is that we not even outsourcing, because outsourcing um, implies some sort of continuing relationship. But instead of the state being responsible to protect your human rights, suddenly it is large tech companies and others that are taking it upon themselves to define, first of all, what your rights are by talking vaguely about ethics, uh, and then to set themselves up as the arbiters of whether or not uh, those ethical entitlements that you have, because they're no longer rights, are actually being protected. There are great critical warnings here, and we need to follow and listen to them. But I don't want to ignore the great promise and power of AI to assist us in developing effective evidence-based policy, fomenting and supporting social protection. This potential is described in the UN Special Rapporteur's thematic report and touched upon here by Professor Felton. And I want to talk, first of all, about the two very positive ways that AI and machine learning can advance social protection. The first, uh, and this is often overlooked, is that AI and machine learning methods are very useful in social science. They can help social scientists better understand poverty and other social ills. They can help social scientists better understand, uh, especially, uh, questions of causality, uh, to distinguish causality from correlation. In, um, in complex social phenomena. And this knowledge that emerges from this, especially knowledge about causality, uh, can be very valuable in trying to uh, understand how to do better, how to design better social protection programs. The second advantage, potential advantage, is that AI can lead to more effective, more accurate decision making in many settings. So that programs might better support social improvement and better support human rights. Again, these are potential capabilities if the technology is deployed and designed, used wisely. We will get into this much more in the next episode, where we'll talk through a few particular examples. These are case studies on social protection, 
which I'm hoping will not only help inform you, dear listener, but also give you a framework for understanding other issues around AI and its employment in societal contexts as they continue to come up in the news and in our daily lives. But before we go, let's quickly discuss the right to an effective remedy. This is the part of human rights law that imposes an obligation on the governments to provide remedies and reparations for the victims of human rights violations. Essentially, this is the assurance not only that justice will be done when human rights are violated, but that there will be a remedy to those harmed. In the context of AI, this begs the question, which I'll leave you with today. When a piece of software is making a decision, who is responsible for that decision? Who is accountable? This has been your primer on human rights. For more information, I recommend you take a look at the UN website on human rights. Extra resources can be found in the notes for the episode, and please send any correspondence to aihrpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Stevie Bergman, and I'll talk to you next time. So social protection is designed to say that this is not just about those who are down and out. It's not just about the homeless, not those who are living in extreme poverty, but a much broader definition of potential vulnerability.